millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to another REIB Roundup, the episodes of Signals to Danger, where we look at current affairs in the world of railway safety with a focus on the work of the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. My name is Dan Fox and I am the producer of the Signals to Danger podcast and a railwayman in my day-to-day life. I'm trying to stick roughly to a weekly release schedule for the podcast and I, well, I do hope you're enjoying the stream of content I'm trying to put out there, but just don't be too disheartened if the days slip a day or two here or there. Um, I've been setting myself quite the pace to try and keep up with and the, the Friday morning release date and time isn't always as attainable as I'd like it to be. But without any further ado, let's dive into this week's roundup. So this week we're going to be looking at three reports that have been released since the last time we did a roundup. That's South Wingfield, Salisbury Old Junction and Loughborough Central. And then finally I'm going to relinquish a bit of time to a friend of the podcast so that they can tell you a bit about an exciting new project. then so this time out we're going to start with a report into what took place at south wingfield this is one of the ones that we covered in the roundup episode when we talked about what accidents that the reib was currently investigating so it should be relatively fresh in people's mind if you're keeping up with the podcast give you a quick recap as to what this incident was i will hit you with the summary from the report at about 702 on the 26th of october 2022 
A train travelling between Derby and Chesterfield unexpectedly encountered a signal displaying a red aspect. Previous signal was green, and as the train was travelling at 100 miles an hour, it was unable to stop before that red signal and passed it by about 760 metres. Train's driver called the signal a right-away to report the incident, and about 17 minutes later, the following train approached the signal, which was now displaying a yellow aspect. After he passed it, travelling at about 20 miles an hour, he saw the taillights of the first train stationary ahead of it and braked to a controlled stop. Second train stopped about 75 metres from the rear of the first, with both trains now in the same signal section. There were no significant consequences, and both trains were able to continue their journeys after obtaining permission from the signaller. Right, so that's the summary straight out of the report. Really concerning situations. Firstly, we've got two trains occupying one signal section. Dangerous occurrence, however it took place. One of the basic principles of signalling is just ensuring that only one train's in any one section at any one time. More concerning, I think, in this case is that we have a signalling system which has quite obviously failed, but more crucially, it's failed in an unsafe way. I mentioned it before, but we call this a wrong side failure. What we want on the railway is right side failures, systems that fail safe. The signal in the hot seat for this occurrence is Delta Yankee 586, located in the South Wingfield area on the railway line between Derby and Chesterfield, which is part of Network Rail's East Midlands route. Nice, fancy modern signal head, so while it's a three-aspect colour light signal capable of showing proceed, caution and danger, with the green, yellow or red lamps respectively, it doesn't do this by lighting up one of three separate lamps behind three separate signal lenses. It's not one of those three high traditional three-aspect signal heads that you might visage. It is in fact a uh, an LED signal head, so it can display all three colours through a single common aperture, which is a very fancy way of saying one lens, three colours of lights. The signal itself is on the left-hand side of the track, as is the standard, but the equipment case, which is associated with it, known as a location case, that's located on the opposite side of the track and connected by cables that run underneath it. Last thing to really say about this signal is that um, Delta Yankee 586 is an automatic signal, so it changes its aspect with the passage of a train without the signaller actually setting the signal. The colour of the aspect displayed is based on the occupation and clearance of defined track sections, and the aspects other signals are showing beyond it. The last routine maintenance on Delta Yankee 586 before the incident was on the 16th of August in 2022. No issues noted by the local signal, signalling maintenance team that required out the checks, and this was only about two months prior to the incident. So we have to ask ourselves, and investigators had to ask themselves, what happened between there and October? Investigators were able to identify some overnight work which had taken place on the signal on the 25th, and unsurprisingly, that is the 25th of October, uh, this work will have been closely scrutinised. The track was being worked on with ballast levelling and cleaning being undertaken by a number of machines. That was part of the um, high output track renewal programme. If you read the report, you'll see this referred to in the report as the HOTR team, uh, and so ballast levelling, cleaning, um, being undertaken by a number of machines. And as such, those cables that ran underneath the track from the location case needed temporarily disconnecting. They also needed to disconnect some other signals, uh, some other cables for some of the surrounding track circuits. There's work to do on this signal as part of the, the track renewal work, which makes perfect sense when you've got signals running underneath the track. You know, you kind of 
uh, cables running underneath the track, so you need to remove them temporarily so you don't damage them when you start digging out ballast and tamping it and cleaning it and all that magical stuff. In the early hours, then after the work was undertaken, engineers were reconnecting and testing the cables, but they were having trouble getting it to display a yellow aspect. They were liaising with signals over the phone to try and get other signals changed to different aspects to make this take place. At 5.51, the team called the signaler back. Signalers changed the aspect on another signal from red to green, which in turn allowed Delta Yankee 586 to display a green aspect. And then at 5.54, the team declared their testing complete and left the railway to go back to their vehicles as the access point, handing all the signal equipment back into service. Between 6.40 and 0700, three trains passed through the Wingfield area without incident, and when all three trains passed Delta Yankee 586, it was correctly displaying a green aspect. Shortly after this, another train approached when the signal should have been displaying a yellow aspect because the preceding train hadn't quite got out of the next section, and we note that what that train actually found was a surprise red. So what does the investigation give us as an immediate cause for this incident? The rather concerning line of Signal Delta Yankee 586 displayed incorrect aspects to the drivers of trains 5 Charlie 23 and 1 Foxtrot 02 because the wiring for its red and yellow aspects was crossed within location case 141-2. The local signalling maintenance team who attended after the incident found that the internal wire for the signal's red aspect was connected to terminal C2, the yellow aspect output, and the internal wire for the signal's yellow aspect was connected to terminal C3. This meant that the signal's red and yellow aspects were effectively swapped over. Terrible state of play, as the ability of the system to display a less restrictive aspect than intended introduced the wrong side failure risk which we saw take place on the day. There were causal factors identified as well. Um, They include that the wiring crossover was introduced by the overnight engineering work. I'm not going to labour the detail identified in the full report because it is a full report. It's got a lot of information in there, but long story short... Cables were disconnected at the wrong end of the relevant terminal bar, and when they were reconnected, they were reconnected to the wrong terminals, so the aspects would show as swapped. It's just like wiring up a switch to the wrong light bulb in your house, if you think of that double one at the bottom of your stairs. If you accidentally connect the wire to the top light, to the bottom switch, and vice versa, every component in that setup can be working perfectly. The light switches are fine, the bulbs are both fine, and all the wiring between them, absolutely intact. But when you flick that switch, the wrong bulb is going to light up. And this is exactly the situation we found ourselves in here. Although the effects there were uh, much more risky than me getting frustrated that the downstairs light comes on when I really need the loo and that toilet's upstairs. So it wouldn't be a massive problem that this mistake had taken place. It would be caught in post-work testing, surely. Except it wasn't, because the second causal factor in this investigation was that the signal maintenance testers who tested Delta Yankee 586 after the cable was reconnected didn't identify that that cross in the wiring had occurred. Um, This report then goes on to tell us that the effectiveness of the testing activities on the night in question was affected by a combination of the following. Firstly, that the signaling group was under time pressure because the time available to complete that reconnection and testing work had been reduced. And also that while one person had overall responsibility for testing the signal, they weren't focused on this activity because of the workload that was placed on them. 
Add into this that the maintenance testers were a bit unfamiliar with the configuration of the signaling equipment at this location. It's a fairly unideal mix. The report does praise some actions, specifically that while it was initially unclear why 5 Charlie Delta 5 Charlie 23 had passed the signal at a red aspect, the potential for collision between the two trains was reduced by the actions taken by both the signalers and the driver of the following train. That is in response to what the Derby signaler had told him about the preceding train spanning and the warning given about potentially there being low addition in the area. The driver of one Foxtrot 02, the second train, reduced his train speed to 40 mile an hour and maintained that speed until they got to Delta Yankee 584. When he approached it, that signal was of course displaying a yellow aspect because the next signal was showing, according to the system's electronic brains, a red lamp. In any case, the driver misinterpreted it as meaning that the train ahead had started moving, but after he passed signal Delta Yankee 584, which is the preceding signal to the accident signal, um, at that cautionary aspect, he decided to reduce his train speed to 20 miles an hour and then maintain that speed. All of this means that when they approached Delta Yankee 586, the poorly signal, which was displaying a yellow aspect, they thought that the train ahead must still be moving. Um, of course, we know the wires have been crossed over, so it was actually displaying a red aspect, just not to the driver. Uh, he decided to carry on at that point at 20 miles an hour, and it was only after passing that signal that he noticed a red light ahead. At first, he didn't understand what that red light was. They knew from the knowledge of the route that the next signal was much further away around the curve, and as the driver got closer, he began to make out that it was the two red taillights of a train ahead. Once he realised that, he brought his train to a controlled stop. Well, it's lucky that he had such a good mind for what might be around the bend and didn't crank the speed up again, because there was still potential for low adhesion, issues like that in the area. So uh, kudos to him for being a cautious train driver. It's what we need. Very much appreciate it. As part of the investigation, Network Rail provided data for previous incidents that related to signal maintenance testing, and that's from a system that it uses to record signalling-related incidents. That data covered a period from 2007 to the end of 2022, and there were 379 events reported during this time that were related to testing under this type of process, or through the high-output track renewal scheme. A review found 81 events that related to wiring or cabling issues. And there were some common themes that could be seen throughout the 81 events, such as test plans not being followed by the testers, staff placed under time pressure to complete training work, um, testing work, sorry, and a lack of independence after testers had become involved in the installation work. And this report also harks back. It's a really, really key point, And I feel like I am having more and more opportunities to labor this point Ideally, I'd want none of them. But this report, like some other ones do, hark back to some historical events of significance. So the Waterloo derailment of a few years ago, uh, uncontrolled modifications made to the signalling system during works and a passenger train was then diverted into the side of a freight train. Luckily, low speed. Luckily, minimal injuries. Unimportant qualifiers, because it still happened. And this... This report, and um, linking that into a serious irregularity at Cardiff East Junction um, around the same time, suggests something that I've mentioned a few times now, like I said, and it's something that really does concern me, that some 
in the industry might be forgetting the lessons learned from the Clapham Junction accident in which 35 people died. If you're not familiar, we haven't covered it on the podcast before, so if you're not familiar, this accident uh, happened on the 12th of December 1988. Three trains that collided just south of Clapham Junction in London. Train driver received a proceed aspect at a signal which should have been displaying a red one. Collided with a train in front, which should have been protected by the signal, and the third train then collided with the wreckage. This incorrect proceed aspect was shown because of inadequate working practices during a re-signalling project that had uh, resulted in a loose, uninsulated, redundant wire um, coming into contact with other circuitry and displaying the false proceed aspect. And indeed, yeah, the Clapham Junction accident, it feels like we're going all the way back there, but it's of particular relevance to what happened at Wingfield. Both involved a train driver receiving a proceed aspect at a signal which should have been displaying a red stop danger aspect. Because there was a train in front that should have been protected by the signal because of an issue with the signal's wiring after work had taken place on it. The parallels are there. The issues are there. Thankfully, the loss of life is not. The destruction of track signalling infrastructure trains, that's not there either. But there's a lot of similarities. And I really hope I'm wrong. But this trend of wrong side failures in signalling, here, Waterloo, Dalwini, I really want the industry to maintain its corporate memory. That's what makes these reports and these investigations so damn important. In any case, not to continue this doomsaying of mine, it's of course a long and detailed report, but before we get cracking on with the show, let's quickly talk about the recommendations that the report dishes out in its conclusion. First two, well, they primarily revolve around the fact that contractors involved in the work should take steps to enhance their existing processes for the assessment, development and ongoing monitoring of staff who undertake signal maintenance on Network Rail's infrastructure. And there are further recommendations that Network Rail should review the workload placed on testers who are given the lead tester role for pre-planned work. Should consider suitable criteria to determine when that tester should focus solely on leading the testing and not other tasks. NetRail is also recommended to implement measures to assure that signaling maintenance testing carried out on its assets by testers it contracts to do the work is being completed in accordance with the requirements and that they should provide signal maintenance testers with a means of recording progress while testing the aspects so that they can record that all aspect permutations have been tested and that all test steps have been completed. The checklist, um, a basic checklist um it feels to me like in a dedicated detailed safety management system that might be something that we probably should have had already but that's uh, it's not for me i don't develop network rails policies on these things and if the sound went all a bit funny there or i started a bit distracted it's because i suddenly realized that my boom harm was falling off the uh the windowsill that I had attached it to um, slightly rotating and then the boom itself, the microphone was slowly descending. So I was trying to lower my head as at the same time and catch it before it, uh, it went too far away from me. But in any case, we are back and working a little bit better now. So let's crack on. Um, to wrap up the report, I also identify some key learning points. And the first for me is the most pertinent. 
Signal maintenance testers are reminded that the signal maintenance testing processes exist to maintain the safety integrity of the signaling system. The importance of these established processes and the potential for unsafe events to occur when they are not followed correctly is demonstrated by the events at Wingfield. It is important that maintenance test plans are referred to during testing and that all the required test steps are completed correctly. It's an incredibly important message, I'm sure we can all agree, and I hope that this message is not lost on those who need to hear it. Okay then, let's move on to the next section of today's episode. The next report that's been released since we last rounded up a roundup is the long-anticipated Salisbury Tunnel Junction report. Just to manage expectations, I'm not going to go into a great massive length of detail here, because this is an accident we are going to be covering in a full episode in the near future, but in the spirit of the roundup, I'm certainly going to round it up. As a refresher for the memory then, at around 18.43 on the 31st of October 2021, one Lima 53, the 1720 Southwestern Railway service from London Waterloo to Honiton, that passed a red signal and collided with the uh, side of one Foxtrot 30, the 1708 Great Western Railway service from Portsmouth Harbour to Bristol Temple Meads. At the time of the collision, one Lima 53 was travelling at approximately 52 miles an hour and one Foxtrot 30 at 20. And this collision took place at Salisbury Tunnel Junction on the immediate approach to Fisherton Tunnel near Salisbury in Wiltshire. The impact of the collision caused the two front carriages of one Lima 53 and the two rear carriages of one Foxtrot 30 to derail. Both trains continued some distance into Fisherton Tunnel before they came to a stop and 13 passengers and one member of staff required treatment in hospital as a result of the accident. Also caused significant damage to the trains and the infrastructure. Uh, there was a potentially far more serious collision between one Lima 53 and an earlier train that was travelling in the opposite direction, which was avoided by less than a minute. This is probably one of the most serious incidents in recent years, with two passenger trains actually coming into collision with each other following the failure of one to stop at a danger signal. So what did the investigation unearth as to the reasons why this accident took place? Again, this is just from the summary, so there is a lot more detail in this that we will talk about soon. But the IRIB tells us that the cause of the accident was that the wheel rail adhesion was low in the area. Very low, in fact, where the driver applied the train's brakes. Also that the driver did not apply the train's brakes sufficiently early to avoid running onto the junction. And that the braking systems of the train were unable to mitigate this very low adhesion. The level of wheel-slash-rail adhesion was very low due to leaf contamination on the railhead. This had been made by a band of drizzle, um, made worse by a band of drizzle that occurred immediately before the passage of the train, and this leaf contamination resulted from weather conditions on the day of the accident, coupled with the uh, increased density of vegetation in the area, which the RAIB actually found had not been effectively managed because Network Rail is supposed to manage vegetation, uh, not being effectively managed by Network Rail's Wessex route. And they'd not effectively managed the contamination on the rail had with either pr- proactive or reactive measures. There were two probable underlying factors that were identified in the 
in that Network Rail's Wessex route did not effectively manage the risks of low adhesion associated with leaf fall season, and also that Southwestern Railway was not effectively preparing its drivers for assessing and reporting low adhesion conditions. Um, that was another possible underlying factor. RIB has also made two safety observations following their investigation, and they relate to the application of the revised design criteria for TPWS, so Train Protection and Warning System, and the assessment of signal overrun risk and how this accounts for the high risk at low adhesion sites, such as this, you know, Selby Tunnel Junction. If a signal, if a train was to overrun that signal, they would end up in the junction, potentially in conflict with other trains. And how does that overrun risk take into account this leaf fall season and excessive low adhesion? There were two issues that were also found that related to the severity of consequences. Um, a loss of survival space in the driver's cab of train 1 Lima 53 and the jamming of internal sliding doors which obstructed passenger evacuation routes. As part of the incident summary page, the RAB also updates us on a number of actions that are already in progress following the incident. For example, since the accident, Network Rail has reviewed its training and competence framework for off-track staff at network level, and it's also reviewing its adhesion management standards. The Wessex route is reviewing its arrangements for proactively responding to reports of low adhesion, including how it undertakes railhead treatment. Southwestern Railway has made changes related to training and briefing of its drivers to ensure information on autumn arrangements has been effectively briefed and understood. Network Rail and Southwestern Rail have also jointly updated their annual autumn leaf, falling, leaf fall working arrangements to ensure that sites at high risk of low adhesion are identified, reassessed, managed and monitored. The RSSB, the Rail Safety and Standards Board, has revised the rail industry standard that provides guidance for the rail industry regarding the management of low adhesion. Cross-industry working groups have also issued revised guidance regarding low adhesion. And finally, in December of 2021, the Safety Authority for the Mainline Railway in Great Britain, the Office of Rail and Road, issued an improvement notice to Network Rail's Wessex route, requiring it to improve its vegetation management and its assessment and control of low adhesion risks. In terms of the recommendations issued by the branch following their deep dive into Salisbury, there were 10, and seven of them were to Network Rail. These relate to a review of processes, standards and guidance documents relating to the management of leaf fall, the training and competence of staff dealing with vegetation management, responses to emerging and potential railhead low adhesion conditions, management of railhead treatment regimes, assessment of the risk of overrun at signals, which have a high risk of low adhesion on the approach, and a review of the retrospective application of design criteria for the train protection and warning system. One recommendation is made to Southwestern Railway to review and improve its arrangements for training and briefing drivers to ensure that they are able to effectively identify areas of low adhesion and report them as appropriate. And one recommendation is made to the Rail Delivery Group in consultation with train operators and the Rail Safety and Standards Board regarding the review of technologies other than sanding systems and wheel slide protection to improve braking in low adhesion conditions. And last but not least, one recommendation is made to Porterbrook, Eversholt and Angel Trains. Uh, they are rolling stock leasing companies, Roscoe's, regarding the design of the internal sliding doors on Class 158 and 159 carriages. Like I said, 
that is the only depth that we're going to dive into at this point, and it does still feel like a bit of a mouthful, because we're going to look at a full episode for this relatively soon, and uh, I don't want to leave you with nothing to hear about and me with nothing to talk about. This is the summary that RAIB's put out on their um, their release page. As ever, the full report is on there. Please feel free. In fact, I would absolutely encourage you to just go and have a look because it's all really interesting and scary at times stuff. Now, on with the show. And indeed, now we're going to go on a journey to Loughborough. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okie dokie, now we're on to the Heritage Rail section of this week's episode, as we're revisiting the incident that took place at Loughborough Central on the Great Central Railway. As a reminder, this incident was at 11.50 in the morning on Saturday the 14th of January 2023, a passenger alighting from a train at the GCRs, the the Great Central Railway's Loughborough Central Station, lost his footing and sustained a serious injury. So this seems like a relatively minor incident, quite isolated and theoretically not the sort of thing you might instinctively consider would be an REIB report. But as we go into it, you should start to see some of the reasons why. There is a good bit of background on the GCR if you're not aware with him with the report, which is really helpful. I certainly found it helpful. And it's that the railway through Loughborough Central Station can be traced back to the 1890s when the uh, Manchester, Sheffield and Lincolnshire Railway was extended southwards from Sheffield to London. Loughborough Central Station was opened in 1899 and closed as a mainline station in 1969, and efforts to preserve it began shortly afterwards. 1974 saw the operation of heritage trains start by Great Central Railway, which I'm going to call GCR a lot through this because it's a bit of a mouthful, and the general layout of the station, platforms and tracks has remained largely unchanged since the station was officially closed in 1969. GCR now operates public passenger trains on the railway from Loughborough Central South to the station at Leicester North. It's about an eight-mile journey with intermediate stations at Quorn and Woodhouse and Rothley. Train involved on the day of the accident then, that was the 11.05 from Leicester North to Loughborough Central, and it was a steam loco, number 78019 for those who are interested, built by BR in 1954 and six Mark I coaches of different types. Some key factors about these Mark 1 coaches relate to their doors, their hinge, so they open outwards, 
They incorporate a drop light window, so that simple vertical window pane which is open by pulling down. But the big thing is the slam door stock. To open a train, door passengers inside have to open the drop light, reach outside to operate the external door handle. There is no internal door handle, the doors aren't centrally locked, and doors are not locked by train crew in normal service unless there's an out of course incident. Now that we know a bit about the train, let's find out about the passenger who was involved. Mr. Alan Smith, 76 years old, and he was visiting GCR with his partner. He was described as being agile and independent, although he was visually impaired as a result of congenital cataracts. In addition, his left leg was reported to be about half an inch shorter than the right because of a hip replacement, and he managed this length difference with an insert in his left shoe, had no effect on his mobility. Alan is an active man, uh, confidently travel on public transport in all its forms, including regularly using mainline trains alone and without assistance. Let's move on to the events of the day then. As the train arrived at Leicester North on the outbound journey, the driver observed that the brake was slow to release, so that to apply power to overcome it. And on two occasions during the return journey, the driver experienced the brakes being slow to release. That's, you know, if you're coming into a station, you want to stop, you put the brake in, let the brake out a little bit, put the brake in, let the brake out a little bit. But if that brake is being less speedy to release, you'll find yourself slowing a bit more quickly than you're expecting to. Bit of a challenge when you're trying to stop a train at a certain point. At arrival into Loughborough then, on the return journey, the train entered the platform 14 minutes later than timetabled. Driver was anticipating that the brakes would be slow to release again, as they had earlier in the journey, so adjusted their driving style accordingly. However, on this occasion, the issue with the brakes didn't manifest itself, so the train travelled further along the platform than the driver had intended. When it came to a stop, the leading edge of the leading door was adjacent to the platform end ramp and not the flat bit of the platform, by about 1.6 metres. The driver knew that the train had gone beyond that intended stopping point and that the leading door was likely to be beyond the platform, however they couldn't reposition the train because passengers would have started to alight from the passenger coaches. This is one of the benefits of doors at which you can open yourself without central locking. There's some cracking archival footage of people just opening slam door stock as trains are stopping at London terminals back in the day and getting off the moving train. But um, Alan and his partner, they'd planned to get off the train at Loughborough Central and witness evidence told investigators on arrival. He went to the leading end of the front coach, opened the door. He then stepped deliberately down onto the platform ramp placing one foot after the other, but he lost his footing and crumpled to the ground. This left him lying on the platform ramp adjacent to the door. His partner stepped down from the coach around him, went to help him, and shortly after this, another passenger also lost their footing exiting from the door. The evidence from witnesses as to where the second passenger landed differs. One account suggested that they may have landed on Allen, but the second passenger wasn't injured and was able to get up unaided. GCR staff and visitors, including an off-duty doctor, went to his assistance. An ambulance was called. That took him to hospital. In hospital, it was identified that he had sustained a spiral fracture to the left femur, and he underwent surgery, which included replacement of a prosthetic hip joint. So that is the details of the event. There was a slight discrepancy noted in that the GCR didn't actually inform the RAIB, although it does meet the criteria of an incident that requires that informing to take place. 
as you'll remember from an incredibly uh, informative podcast you might have heard a week or so, two weeks or three weeks ago. Serious injury to one passenger requires notification to the RIB within three days. GCR did, however, inform the Office of Rail and Road, who informed the, the branch in their normal ongoing communication with each other. In terms of findings then, the RIB, that tells us that the immediate cause was that the passenger lost his footing and fell while alighting from the train, because he was unable to safely negotiate the step down onto the platform end ramp. Witness evidence indicates that the passenger, having opened the leading end door of the coach, commented to his partner that there was a larger than normal vertical distance. For this reason, he decided to alight first to help his partner down from the train. He then stepped down deliberately, like I said, one foot after the other, but he lost his footing at that point and he crumpled to the ground. The causal factors might not be too surprising, um, considering what we heard of the accident. There was three identified. Firstly, that the train stopped with the leading door of that first coach adjacent to the platform end ramp. Secondly, that the passenger was unable to safely alight because of the stepping distance. And thirdly, that control measures put in place by GCR had not effectively controlled the risk of a person alighting from a door that wasn't on a usable platform. So a further look then at that first causal factor, the uh, the branch identified that the usable length of the platform was only around two metres longer than the distance between the end doors of the formation. It's not a lot of tolerance there for the stopping position of trains, and also the intermittent brake fault, well that made precise stopping difficult. A challenging combination to match up if I'm honest. On the second causal factor that the stepping distance prevented safer lighting, that's also very much worth looking at and actually spawned two sub-factors. The first was that there was this larger than normal vertical stepping height present when stepping from the coach's footstep to the platform, and that increased the likelihood of a loss of footing by the passenger. Well, an engineering drawing from 1895 shows that there was a designed platform height of three feet above the rail level at this north end of Loughborough uh, Central Station. But over time, this had changed. So back in July of 2015, GCR measured the track bed as being 7.75 inches too high at the north end. And REIB hasn't been able to determine when or how the track bed became higher than it was designed, but it's probably the result of periodic relaying of the track, the addition of ballast. If you're not being careful when you do these things, it happens. The consequence of the elevated track bed was an increased vertical stepping height for passengers. So, for example, on the coach that was involved in the accident, a correctly platformed door at the north end of platform 1 was approximately 17 inches vertically above the platform. GCR was measuring this stepping height by providing wooden stepping boxes on passenger coaches and provided the platforms for the use of on-train or platform staff if required to sort of half this Quite enormous stepping distance. Interestingly, it's about double the height for mainline standards, um, but heritage lines aren't obliged to meet these mainline standards. The key factor to remember here, though, is that the lead door wasn't accommodated in the platform. So with that door adjacent to the ramp, this meant that that normal, in inverted commas, stepping height of about 17 inches was further increased across the width of the door between 22 and 23-ish inches. That's a massive step down, but it's made all the worse when you consider that the second sub-factor 
was that the passenger didn't realise he was stepping down onto a sloped surface. So RAIB undertook a series of photographs as part of a reconstruction of the event. Um, It shows that the slope along that ramp end was not easy to distinguish, even in a photo that they show you where it's annotated as such. Considering that, it's likely that a visually impaired person, such as Alan, wouldn't be able to distinguish the slope, and so be more likely to lose his footing as he alighted. The final causal factor for this one then was that the control measures of the GCR hadn't adequately controlled this risk. And that's likely to be true, all things considered. GCR's, GCR had documented risk assessments for all of its station platforms, and in 2019, the risk assessment for Platform 1 at Loughborough was taken place. It considered issues associated with train dispatch, the nature of the platform surface, risks arising from overcrowding, poor weather. It recognised the larger than normal stepping distance and told how stepping boxes would be available to mitigate the associated risks. In addition to this, GCR had recognised that when it ran seven or eight coach trains, they couldn't be safely accommodated at Loughborough Central Station. And on these occasions, staff would be briefed to ensure that passengers in affected coaches were told not to use certain doors. Platform staff would be positioned to prevent passengers from trying to alight from those doors. Uh, there was a requirement in the line's rulebook which required guards to warn passengers on trains when not all the doors would be safely accommodated. And although the risk assessment identified some additional control measures, there was no defined means of ensuring that they were followed up. It's a bit moot pointy, because the train involved in the accident was formed of six coaches, so none of these additional control measures would have been applied. There were some underlying factors as well which the brand identified as part of their work. Firstly, that GCR didn't have effective processes for learning lessons from operational experience. The branch identified that that incident on the 14th of January 2023 was not an isolated occasion, where a coach door had not been safely accommodated at Loughborough Central. A very similar incident happened in 2014 when an elderly visually impaired passenger fell when they tried to alight from a coach at a door that was adjacent to the platform end ramp at Loughborough Central. This passenger was taken to hospital, but was discharged after being examined. The accident was notified to GCR staff at the time, and an accident report was completed, although RAIB found no evidence that it triggered a review of the associated risk assessment or that any changes were made as a result of it. Witness evidence also indicated that two weeks after the January 2023 incident, A train stopped again so that the leading door of the leading coach was beyond the level part of the platform and that passengers had alighted onto the platform ramp. Add into the mix that the RAIB has seen social media reports suggesting that other visitors had experienced similar incidents at Loughborough Central and it's safe to say that the evidence suggests there had been a considerable number of incidents of passengers alighting from doors not adjacent to platforms on GCR. Key point here is that had GCR provided an effective means of ensuring that their staff understood the importance of vigilance towards identifying and reporting near misses, then the opportunity would have existed for GCR. I'm really struggling to say GCR for some reason. GCR to identify these previous incidents, revise risk assessments and implement effective mitigation measures. 
The second underlying factor was that GCR had no effective process to support the identification, management or monitoring of risk. Getting in deep might be a task for another day, but I'm very briefly going to introduce you to ROGS. That is the uh, the Railways and Other Guided Transport Systems Safety Regulations of 2006. In fact, I probably will round up this at some point on a roundup to, uh, to, to tell you about it. But it is a very important document which provides the regulatory regime for rail safety, including all the types of rail travel that there is, so metros, trams, inclusive of heritage. And Regulation 19 of ROGS requires that transport operators make a suitable and sufficient assessment of the risks to the safety of any persons for the purpose of identifying the measures he needs to take to ensure safe operation of the transport system. Although an overarching policy within GCR's safety management system, which we tend to call an SMS in the industry, described how risk should be assessed, GCR did not have a documented process which described how this should be done. In fact, the SMS referred to two policies, a risk assessment philosophy policy and a risk management and risk assessment process policy. Both documents had reference numbers, were directly cited. REIB found that the philosophy document did not actually exist and the process document, although almost complete, had not been approved or issued since it was written in 2014. So just to close this one out, because it's turning out to be maybe more in-depth than I want or intended roundups to be, let's talk recommendations. This one's actually been a bit preempted by GCR themselves. A week after the accident, uh, GCR committed to arrange an independent review of its SMS, which is in progress, and transferred safety responsibility to a new general manager. A new GCR board, Health, Safety and Environment Committee, was established to scrutinise safety performance and to hold the general manager and the company's exec to account for the discharge of their safety responsibilities. So that first recommendation is that they should continue with their review of their SMS, focusing on development of a robust process for assessing and controlling risks, ensuring well-defined process for investigating and reporting accidents and near misses, and ensuring that disabled passengers and staff's needs are reflected in their assessment of risk. Second recommendation was also to GCR, and that was to continue its review of organisational structure and processes. That's to give senior managers and the board a comprehensive understanding of what activities are being undertaken to manage risks, and that learning from incidents is shared. And finally, a third recommendation was directed at the Heritage Railway Association, and said that in consultation with its members, it should produce guidance on identifying and assessing the risks associated with the platform train interface. This guidance should reflect, where relevant, any applicable law, guidance and good practice, including from other railways, including the main line. Okie dokie. Right. That's probably enough for Loughborough Central now. So we're arriving at our penultimate station for this week, where we're going to find out about Rail Junction. Right, so let's have a nice positive section to wrap up this week's podcast. I think it's clear that I have a real passion for the rail industry, and that's as both part of my work and my hobby, which you'll probably all be aware of because you've sat there for many, many hours now, and I tried to think how long if you had it up listening to Muggins harp on about the railway. 
But I really think it's important that we do what we can to hand off that passion and interest to the future and the next generation of rail people. So with that in mind, I'm going to do something very rare. I'm going to hand over the airwaves to Chris Jeffrey, friend of the podcast and indeed friend of Dan, so that he can share some pretty exciting news with you all and introduce you all to Rail Junction. Thanks, Dan. Hello, Signals to Danger listeners. I've been a railway enthusiast for about 15 years now. The different types of trains and their designs and sounds, the different stations to travel to and landscapes to travel through, have proven to be fascinating to me. But when I first started, I didn't realise what a thriving community of enthusiasts there was. The growth of social media made it easy to meet other people who shared my interests, and I've made lifelong friends with people who share my passion for railways. After years of trying, I'm now lucky enough to work for a train operating company in a role where I can use my knowledge and passion to improve the customer experience for passengers in the north and into Scotland. I feel very strongly that the rail enthusiasts of today will be the railway employees of tomorrow, and that the industry should be doing more to help rail fans into rail careers. So I've launched Rail Junction. Rail Junction will help enthusiasts aged between 16 and 30 enjoy their hobby safely, whilst also supporting them in gaining the skills and knowledge to pursue their dream career. Through exclusive events such as depot tours and behind-the-scenes visits, competitions and social networking, Rail Junction will help enthusiasts looking for work learn valuable new skills and meet mentors through a targeted outreach program. I'd like to invite you, Signals to Danger listeners, to join Rail Junction if you think this is right up your street. The group is just starting out, but we need new members to help kickstart our exciting plans. You can join for free at railjunction.uk, and you can find us on social media at railjunction.uk or one word. I'd also love to hear from you if you work in the rail industry yourself and think that you or your company might be able to support the group with events, articles or video content. You can email help at railjunction.uk to find out more. Thanks for listening. Rail Junction is already shaping up to be something really exciting. It's only just in its initial stages, launched officially on the 28th of October last week. But I've been talking to Chris for a little while about the project. It's exciting to watch it grow and to see the buy-in from some of the organisations who've already pledged some support. If you watch any of their videos, you might recognise the voiceover declaring it's a Rail Junction video. But more importantly, there are actually some really exciting support that Chris has told me about from other much more relevant and impressive industry players. So I would really just love to give you a push in the right direction and ask that if you or somebody you know is in the 16 to 30 bracket, go and have a look at railjunction.uk. It's a really exciting time. And for one, I cannot wait to see what Rail Junction becomes over the next few years. Get clicking and go and check out Rail Junction UK on the social media channels. Which brings me to the end of this roundup. Thanks as ever for coming to join us as we look into the most current of affairs in rail safety. Please come and hang out with me in the virtual world of social media and join the conversation. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Daniel Fox Rail or Signals to Danger. Normally say them the other way around. I just thought I'd mix it up for this one time. And if email is your way of keeping in touch with people, just reach out at two signals oh i am struggling today that's not all the email address 
If email is the part where you want to get in touch with me, you can get me on daniel.fox at dfrailmedia.com. As ever, there are other ways you can support the podcast if you want to. That's through Patreon or through merchandise. So head over to signalsadanger.com forward slash support for all the info on that. That is it for me. Clearly, I'm getting tired and I'm struggling to get all my words out in the right order. So I probably should wrap up the podcast and tell you that until the next time you hear my voice, travel safe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.